Hello, and welcome to Returning to Us, a podcast that gives you strategies and tips for how to hack your brain, build and strengthen relationships, and to teach people how to recognize and neutralize their emotional states. I'll discuss emotional intelligence and regulation, how food and exercise impact the body and brain, and share lessons from my own lived experiences. I'm Lauren Spiegelmeyer, the founder of The Behavior Hub, which is an organization that works to reduce the stressors of raising and educating children through a brain and biology-based lens. In these episodes, I'll share stories and strategies from my own life, work, and research, answer listener questions, and wrap it up with a try-it-at-home tip. Decades worth of information in just minutes. You ready? All right, we are back and we are switching gears here a little bit. This is something I have not gone into yet, but it is a part of my work at the university and in the behavior hub and just kind of immersed into everything I'm doing. So I talk a lot about behavior. I talk a lot about stress. I talk a lot about burnout. I talk a lot about trauma and the brain. This is brain related, but it's more in the direction of how do we teach in order to get kids to listen, attend, engage, learn. Remember, so I'm going to share with you this kind of like teaching model, teaching structure based on presenting information, whether it's a skill or a concept or a word, whatever it may be. And this is based on neuroscience. It's based on the research behind the brain, which will optimize if students or people remember things that are taught and we typically lose about 80% of what we learn in the first 48 hours. So using this strategy will help one to remember that information and not lose so much. So what are the steps? There are five. It's called, but there's no name for it, but the steps are pre-exposure to the information, previewing the information, priming students for the information or participants, reviewing and then revising. Sometimes you won't be able to do all of these things, but most we can probably do if we plan ahead. So this is definitely a planning type of lesson. It's pretty hard to do this the day of. So what do they each mean? When you're introducing a new concept, new skill, whatever it is, it is good to pre-expose your participants or your students to that information. So that means we are kind of like covertly preparing students to be prepared for what's coming in the future in terms of content. And we might prepare them a couple of days in advance, a couple of weeks in advance, or even months in advance. So why does this matter? Why why would we need to pre-expose students? Why? Because it builds background knowledge. So it starts to begin to create this like neural connection. And if you've ever heard the saying, what uh, fires together, wires together, It's basically meaning when you have all these exposures to this new information, it's firing and all the exposures wire it. And then it does something called myelinates. And when it does that, it's a lot easier to pull out of your brain, meaning we remembered it. So it's really important to try to expose students, participants, whoever you're teaching before you actually do it. So, I mean, this could be simple. It could be 
Well, let's save it. I'll give you some examples once I go through the first three parts. The second part is called previewing. It's pretty straightforward, <laughs> slightly more overt. It involves setting the stage for the content that is coming. And this is more like minutes or hours ahead. It's a really short and easy thing to do. It typically lasts like 30 seconds, maybe a minute. Why do we do this? Well, one, because new information is a little bit stressful. So if we have this preview to it, then we already feel more comfortable with the content. Plus, since we've already been pre-exposed, it hits that prior knowledge area, aka myelinates that neural network and helps our brain to prepare for the material that's coming. It helps like almost get your files in your brain and your memory system organized and ready to receive. And the third part, I'm going to kind of break this into two chunks. It's pre-exposure, previewing, priming, then you do your teaching, and then it's reviewing and revising. I'll go over those again, but reviewing and revising are post-teaching, pre-exposure, previewing, priming, all pre-teaching. So I'm going to start with those three, share some examples, and then go into the last two. So talking about priming. Priming is essentially introducing the concept in advance and then coming back to it moments before you teach. So there's a, a really good example of this. Say that like, let me think. If you ask students to name 10 superfoods, brain-based superfoods, and they might only get like one or two. But if you expose them to brain superfoods weeks beforehand, you are priming their brains. And when you ask that priming question right before you go live, they're going to probably get a whole lot more because you primed them in advance and then you're re kind of reintroducing the prime by asking the question right before to, to re-engage them. Why? Why does this matter? Well, if you introduce it in advance and it's, it's different than the pre-exposure because the prime is the immediate last thing you do. It's, it's connected to the pre-exposure. So you go from the pre-exposure to the prime. The prime is maybe the question or the thing that you do right before you go live. Part of the prime is that pre-introduction, that like intentional kind of almost teaching, explicit teaching. This really, really helps to accelerate that learning because it gives the brain more information to build into that neural structure. And it makes that pathway a lot stronger. So what are some examples of things that you could do that would be considered pre-exposures, primes, previews? You could introduce vocabulary that might be involved with like a story or a lesson. You could show them a video, like connected video. There's actually a program that I work for at a tech company part-time and, and one of their strategies is they have what they call a get curious video. So it piques students' interest and engages them before they start the actual lesson. You could do a field trip, like an actual field trip or a virtual one. Obviously it takes a little bit more planning to do an actual field trip, but you could do a virtual one. You could introduce the material through like arts of some sort, related arts, or maybe even like a famous person or possibly music, something that like older kids definitely connect to. You could display on the wall posters or the words or the concepts or an image or a related image so that the brain scans it, sees it when they're in the room. You could give a pre-quiz. You could do something with fill in the blank. And you might even do something we call like a choral response. So those are all examples of things that you could do for the pre-exposure, the preview, and the priming. Those three things 
come before the teaching. Remember the pre-exposure is days, weeks, or months ahead. The previewing is minutes, maybe even hours ahead. And the priming is just seconds before you go live. Then you teach, you do your explicit teaching. And once the teaching is done, we end or wrap up with like a debrief, or in this case, we're gonna call it a review. This is minutes after you teach, maybe 30 minutes after you teach, because I do a lot of, in, in most schools, and it's not necessarily have to be at school, it could be teaching adults, it could be teaching anything. We go through this I do, we do, you do model. It's called the gradual release of responsibility. I do it, then you do it with me, then we do it together. That whole process does not take very long at all. Very, just a few minutes. And when the students go off and, and do it on their own, they do spend a little more time in that area. But then we always bring them back to do some type of debrief or review. So if the lesson is mm, 60 minutes, I might do like 10 minute, I do, we do, maybe 15. And then like the next 30 is them off working independently for the I do. And then we come back together for five or 10 to do the review. So we're just going over what we learned or maybe sharing something that we learned. And this can be as a whole group, but it can also be in partners or pairs or groups or individually. They could make up their own debrief or make up their own game. They could create a review game for themselves or for their peers. Why does this one matter? Well, because it's that repetition. Neurons that fire together, wire together. The more you expose them, the more likely they are to remember, going to remember it and the more readily available will be in their memory system. And then you've got your revision. That's your last one. So this is the one that we probably often don't have time to get to, but we really need to get to. And it is a part of a lot of school systems, but you can't do it necessarily for every lesson because there's not time. Revision is it, what it says. It's revising. It's going back and reconstructing the learning, correcting the errors and reteaching what the students didn't get. So if you're teaching something and you realize a student didn't get it or a group of students didn't get it, you're going to go back and reteach it. You're going to go revise what they have stored. Why? Because if the in initial memory, if the initial storage is corrupt, we would call that an error, then that becomes a real memory for them. And the more that they are exposed over time without the revision, the more that becomes solidifies and it solidifies the error, which we do not want. But if we do the revision right away and they're re-exposed over time with the revision, then it will solidify the correct memory. So what are some examples of revising, reviewing? Students could also create a quiz for this, or you could create a quiz for this. <laughs> it could be summarized, like summarizing in a piece of writing, summarizing in the creation of something, summarizing in a partner, pair up and share. It could be the submission of a graphic organizer. It could even be like summarizing in a rhyme or a one-line review. There was this activity I have done before with, with adults and with kids called graffiti gist, where I'd want them to read something. And um, I would put a big chart paper in the middle of the table or tables or on the floor, and they would read something. And as they were reading it, they would, it was typically nonfiction, they would pull out what stuck out to them. Although, you know, it could be a regular story and you pull out important components. Regular story meaning fiction. <laughs> so everybody has a marker. Everybody's on this graphic organizer. There could be like three, four, five people in a group. And they're all just graffitiing any thoughts or memories that they have from the writing. I'm sorry, from the reading. 
from the reading. They are writing what they remember from the reading. It gets blotted all over that chart paper. And then the next step is, after the time is up, to read each other's thoughts and come together and make a one-sentence summary of the story, the concept, whatever it was. So it's a fun, interactive move, kind of move your body because it's a huge piece of chart paper activity to do to get or be involved in it. it. It can hit on a lot of these areas if you plan it correctly or plan it right. So pre-exposure, previewing, priming come before the teaching and you teach. And then you've got the reviewing and the revision. The reviewing happens minutes after, the revision happens maybe hours after, maybe days after, maybe even weeks later. Your five steps in total are pre-exposure, previewing, priming, reviewing, and revision. Why? Because it helps the brain to store the information and store it correctly. And in a world we have a lot of information thrown at us all day long, it is hard to store it and store it correctly. And it's often misstored. So this ensures that it is stored just a little bit better. <laughs> all right. So let's for a second here, just think about how we could apply this to our setting. So maybe that is with our own children. Maybe that's with our partner. Maybe you're a teacher and that's with your students in your classroom. How does this apply to your own life? Maybe you work in a field where you teach. This would be a good thing to include. And it doesn't necessarily need to teach in education. Like you teach other people things. Like a content designer or a course designer. <laughs> or some type of professional development trainer. I just want you to pause here. Even if you pause the podcast and you just stop and you think about that and think about how you might already do this and what you could do and how these components fit into the learning of new information or how you can even do this for yourself when you're self-teaching. That's helpful too. And that takes us to today's listener question, which is how has COVID affected the stress in our kids? Hard-ish to measure exactly, uh, we have, sure, I'm sure there's data of like kids baseline stress before the pandemic and kids stress post COVID. I mean, but I don't even know that you need to, <laughs> I don't think you need to test it. Different genealogy, that's not the word I wanted, different genes uh, and different environments that kids live in kind of make them, not kind of, they do make them more resilient or less resilient to stress. So COVID caused a lot of stress and a lot of trauma. Some kids will respond okay to that. Some will not. It really depends on a lot of factors, mostly around genes and environment. But we can say that everyone has been impacted by it, for the most part, and are feeling the effects of the stress, especially the prolonged stress, because the stress lasted two, three years. So I don't know that we need to know how has it affected them. We need to know that it has affected them. And this is a similar question that I talk to a lot of people when I talk about trauma. They're like, well, we need to know what happened in order to help them. No, you don't. You don't. And you may never find out. Knowing what the trauma was or is isn't necessarily important. It's helpful. It would be good to report if we knew and we could help a child or someone get out of that situation, but we may not have that information. Maybe someone can't even tell us that information. Maybe they don't even recognize it as the information that should be shared or could be shared. So we don't need to know what the trauma is. We just need to respond in a way that helps them recover from the trauma. Same thing here. 
you don't even know how much stress or what stress, or we just need to know that everyone was impacted and it was stressful. And there are things that we can do to reduce the stress to make things easier. One of which is our emotional reactivity is definitely real high as a society and it got much higher post COVID. So teaching kids emotional regulation skills, like this, this is just something I talked to my own family about today. People that are around my son, here are things that I would like you to do as he hit the one year mark, different emotional games. Like if you play peekaboo, great, fun, awesome. Can you try and play peekaboo where each time that you boo, <laughs> it's a different emotional facial expression. And you could say, peekaboo, I'm angry. Peekaboo, I'm sad. Peekaboo, I'm happy. <laughs> Things like that. There are also different emotion books. There are emotion games. You can point out in the community when people around you are happy, sad, frustrated, angry, whatever. All these things can be taught through micro moments. The other thing that I would say is just have open conversations if kids are old enough to be able to create create a safe space for them to come and lay down what they're carrying. Because the more they carry it and keep it at that cellular level in their body, the more it builds up and causes disease. So if they can get it out, and if not even to you, get it out on paper, write it, draw it, act it, move your body, whatever it is, get the stress out, release it from the body would be the second thing I'd recommend. And there are many, many more things that you could do to reduce stress, but we're going to start there. To wrap up the show, I am going to share with you our try it at home tip, which is recognizing signs of high anxiety. And I'm going to give you 12. These are potentially for kids, but definitely more for adults. So what are 12 signs that you might have some anxiety you would like to address? Ruminating, meaning something like these problems aren't always solved by thinking about them over and over and over and over. Don't ruminate on the problem. Put a small solution in place. You might spend a lot of time on social or on Netflix, just mindlessly scrolling or watching or listening. We think it's a relief and a release, but it could be because your mind is trying to avoid that anxiety, which might also cause you to like clean or organize more regularly or maybe obsessively. Again, kind of that avoidance because anxiety is so bad and organizing your external world world makes you feel like your internal world is more negative. This one's harder to catch, but you might also be speaking to yourself very unkindly. You might have something like intrusive or... Um, catastrophic thoughts, like just the exaggerated, like wild, like just horrific things going to happen. You might avoid going to bed because maybe thoughts come up while you're sleeping or maybe you want to avoid starting the next day. You might even like put off simple little things like dishes in the sink or going to get your mail or uh, dropping something off at the UPS store, putting off those simple micro tasks. You might resort to, I guess, substance like overeating or alcohol, or maybe even overexercise, kind of the opposite of overeating, 
but just overdoing something. It could even be overworking. That's one that most people miss is working to avoid the feelings going on inside your body and your mind. And I would say eh, procrastination really goes along with that. Like putting off the minor things, you're just avoiding doing something like maybe not a minor thing, but like a work task that isn't so minor that needs to be done, but you're procrastinating on doing it. So those are just a few signs of anxiety. I would encourage you to, if you didn't get all of them to pause, go back and re-listen to those and think about, do you have any of these like effects of anxiety or symptoms of anxiety? And if so, how can you stop doing those things? And how, more importantly, can you address the anxiety? How can you get your brain to stop thinking so far into the future that it causes you emotional pain? How can you come back to the present? Because the answer and solution to anxiety is presence. Coming back to the present moment. Because if you're not thinking about the future, the anxiety doesn't pop up. If you're present, you're present. And that's it for today's episode of Returning to Us Podcast. Remember, our tried at home tip, those signs of anxiety. If you were looking for more support in the area of stress, trauma, behavior, and the brain, I'd love to be part of that learning journey. The Behavior Hub offers a range of supports from coaching to online courses, to university credit, lots of stuff to help educators and parents as well. Feel free to email me, email me on the website or you can shoot me a text at 717-693-7744. And I mentioned... I think it was last episode, about a new business endeavor. So I will give you a little tiny hint to that. It is an organization called Five Ives. It is a coaching platform that a partner of mine, Jessica During, and I are beginning to launch. And this will be a multi-year program for schools to buy into and eventually medical and behavioral health and corporate. <laughs> where we take people through these five steps, these five I's. And the purpose of this work is to reduce burnout, reduce turnover, and to reduce stress and to help people love their jobs again and to help people lead better, to work with administration and people in positions of power, to communicate better, to create a better culture so that people don't want to leave. So it's very circular. And that way we will work with leadership and that will influence staff and staff will influence leaders and leaders will influence staff. And it will just keep circling in a positive manner where everyone feels much better and has way more grace and compassion for each other, all based on the brain, the nervous system, and what we know about human trauma. All right. <laughs> That's it. And until next episode, I am Lauren Spiegelmeyer and thank you for joining me. Thank you.